Well, last week we established the biblical case for the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. If you recall, maybe we should say it together. What is man's chief end? Kids, can you tell me? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's right. And we saw that God has created us for His glory and that by living for His glory, we actually find our greatest joy. It's when we live for the glory of God that we actually find that living for His glory also becomes our greatest joy in life and a joy that nothing in this earth can come close to touching. So that was uh, last week. It's, it says, the psalmist said in Psalm 1611, in God's presence there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. So now that we have unpacked question one of the catechism, and if you do want to follow along with that, you can open up the Trinity hymnal and look in the back if you'd like to follow along on the answer. Uh, But now that we've unpacked question one, you remember that left us at the end of the lesson asking the question, okay, if our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, well, what does that actually look like? How do we know if we're living for God's glory? Because many people, from ancient philosophers to talk show hosts, have given their opinions about what the good life is and how to attain it. And even some of them have given their so-called spiritual advice on how you achieve that end. And, And sadly, many people go astray by them. So the question is, what is the rule for God's people? Has God given us a rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? And I hope we could all say yes. The answer is the same rule that we used to weigh the first question of the catechism. The answer is the word of God. The word of God. So question two of the catechism asks, What rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? And the answer is, maybe could I get one of my kids to say it again? What's the answer? The word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. Good job, kids. The word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. So we will look at this answer in two parts. We'll unpack it in two parts. So the first thing we need to see in this answer that it teaches us is, number one, the Bible is the rule. Very simple. The Bible is the rule. The catechism clearly states that the word of God is the rule that directs us how to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So if you want to know how it is to glorify God and what it means and what the pathway is to enjoy him forever, we need to know what God's word says. It's kind of one of those really basic points in the Christian life that it's it's actually remarkable how easy it is to forget it and to start looking at other things, uh, whether it's TV or advertisements or what other people will say to try to be happy. And all the while, God's word is right there telling us. 
And so we're kind of coming back to the basics. Notice these first two questions of the catechism are really like Christianity 101. What's our chief end? It's to glorify God, to enjoy him forever. How do we know how to do that? The Bible. This is really these two things that they're fundamental to everything else that's going to come after this when we get into the really amazing theology that's going to be developed in the shorter catechism. It's all founded on these two very basic principles. So the Bible is the rule. But the question is, uh, this catechism particularly states, it doesn't use the word the Bible, it says the word of God. But we need to clarify what the word of God is. And why is that? It's because many people claim to speak the word of God. Israel was plagued by false prophets who claimed to speak for God. The nations surrounding Israel in their day all had prophets speaking who claimed to speak for God. And the same is true today. Uh, And it's true in history. Look back. For example, let's take Islam as a case. You have Muhammad who claimed to speak for God. And the Quran comes out of that. Uh, You have cult figures like the Mormon leader Joseph Smith who claimed to speak for God. You have false teachers like the Pope who claims to speak for God. For God. In, in Roman Catholic theology, the idea is that literally the Apostle Peter speaks through the mouth of the Pope. So when the Pope ever utters a, uh, an official pronouncement or verdict, he is doing so believing that the Apostle Peter is literally speaking through his mouth. You also have... Uh, They've been kind of called the so-called super apostles, to use a phrase that uh, the Apostle Paul uses. You have super apostles like Bill Johnson at Bethel Reading or Mike Bickle of IHOP who claim to speak for God. They claim to speak the word of God. Now, these false teachers will all give you different answers on what the word of God is and where to find it. So, for example, for Muhammad, he would tell you, you find it in the Quran. For Joseph Smith, he would say, well, the full revelation of God is found in the Book of Mormon. So you have the Bible and then the Book of Mormon, so another, another book. For the Pope and the Roman Catholic uh, system, it's not just the Bible, but it's everything that the church tradition and all the popes have issued that has the same authoritative weight as Scripture, and that actually, in practice, it actually rides above Scripture in terms of what is most authoritative. So the full revelation, they would say, is Scripture plus tradition. And then for the super apostles of what is called the New Apostolic Reformation, As an example, you have false teachers like Bill Johnson who teach that the full revelation of God's word is found in external signs and wonders and extra-biblical prophecies. So, for as an example, I have actually seen Bill Johnson make fun of churches that gather around a pulpit 
to hear a sermon from the Bible. Uh, there's a uh, actually a, uh, on there. It's called Bethel TV. You can go and it's called Glory Cloud at Bethel. You can find it on YouTube, and they have glitter falling from the ceiling that they claim is the Shekinah glory of God, the the same kind of glory that was manifest in the temple. So it's this picture of everyone looking in in amazement at this glitter falling from the ceiling. And Bill Johnson is claiming that that is God coming and showing his presence among the people. And in that video then, he says, most churches gather around a pulpit to hear a sermon. We gather around the presence of God. So that's an all the while slamming anybody that actually preaches the word. So what is the word of God? What is it? So the catechism safeguards what the word of God is by specifically stating in the, in the answer that it is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. So that the word of God is contained in the canon of scripture, the Old Testament and the New Testament. In other words, it's the 66 books that is found in our Bibles. If you want to read more on that, you can uh, read the Westminster Confession of Faith, which has a a very uh, long first chapter on uh, the doctrine of Scripture, if you want to go in more depth there. But the Westminster theologians give us scriptural proofs for this proposition. And the first one is one that we reference in our sermon this morning, 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And we will not unpack all that this verse has to say, but we will. I just want to simply point out one thing here. And it's what the Bible says about itself. So this is kind of an interesting idea. The Bible is bearing witness about itself and what it is. And uh, for you philosophers out there, you might say, well, isn't that circular reasoning for the Bible itself to defend and say what it is? Isn't that circular reasoning? Well, you need to understand that all reasoning is circular. All reasoning ends up going back to a faith proposition that cannot be proved. Whether it's the philosopher saying there is no God, or scripture saying that it is inspired by God. At the end of the day, both propositions rest on faith. All philosophical and religious systems are based on a belief system, whether it be theistic, atheistic, or anything in between. So that's a little uh, excerpt on philosophy. Now we'll go back uh, to the text. Back to 2 Timothy 3.16. So here we see that the Bible teaches that all scripture is profitable for something, and that is for training in righteousness. And the emphasis is on the word all. The emphasis is on the word all, that all of scripture is inspired by God. It's it's breathed out. Uh, It's breathed out. The spirit is speaking 
God himself is speaking through the word of God. Now, in this context, Paul is speaking about the Old Testament. So we read this letter in 2 Timothy, but Paul's speaking about the Old Testament, right, Luke? Yeah. That's right. Okay, he's speaking about the Old Testament. But remember that uh, at this point, there's no New Testament. There's some letters circulating around, uh, but it's not been collected as a formal book yet. But the point here is that all of Scripture is the source has the source and location of God-breathed revelation. And that God-breathed revelation also includes the New Testament. So though this lecture is not intended to be a full-throated defense, I'm not going to give you a full-throated defense of Scripture here. We can say, however, that even by the time of Peter, he is giving recognition that even Paul's writings are scripture as you can uh, you can look up for yourself second peter 3 2 15 and 16 and this is also fitting with jesus's words in john 16 13 that the holy spirit would guide his disciples into all truth uh, jesus gave his teaching his commandments to his disciples And even after Jesus goes, the Spirit guides them into all truth. And thus, both the Old Testament and the New Testament are the inspired Word of God. So what the Westminster theologians are saying is that the Word of God is contained within the Scriptures of the Old and New Testament. Uh, Another New Testament reference that the Catechism draws our attention to is Ephesians 2.20. And here it says that uh, from the Apostle Paul that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So you have this picture of the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles. And this is the foundation of, upon which the church is built, with Christ as the cornerstone that holds it all together. Paul is consistently drawing from the Old Testament prophets, which would include, for example, in a broad sense here, as he uses the books of Moses, the Psalms, and so forth. But Paul also sees the apostles as foundational, unique spokesmen for God in addition to the prophets. Uh, I want to draw your attention to Jude cha- uh, chapter 1, verse 3. There's only one chapter, so you can just say Jude 3. You don't have to say chapter 1, 3. But there, Jude gives the charge to the church to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It's one uh, really long sentence. That's, I think if I remember the ordering of the Greek, it's the once for all delivered to the saints' faith. If, if I remember correctly, I didn't look that up before that, but the once for all delivered to the saints faith. In other words, what Jude is saying is that you're not going to be getting more revelation as time goes on to really learn what the faith is like. Sorry, Pope, and all of your tradition you added to it. But Jude is saying the faith has been once for all delivered to the saints. As we read in uh, uh, Hebrews Chapter 1 this morning. Again, 
the Lord spoke by prophets, but now the last word has come in his son. And that word has been given to us by the New Testament apostles. The faith is once for all delivered to the saints. It's unique. And we have God's unique word in the Old and New Testaments. So the catechism is teaching us, as the Bible clearly attests, that the source and the location of the word of God is the Bible. The source and location of the word of God is the Bible. Therefore, when we want to hear from God, we open the Bible. We're not looking for other places to try to hear from the Lord. The faith that's once for all delivered to the saints is found in the Bible. It's right here. Before we move to the second part of the catechism, though, we do need to ask, what does it mean that the word of God is contained in? Uh, What does it mean that the word is contained in? Is it like a jar where it sits there? What what does this mean? And uh, this might feel a little bit academic, but I'd ask you to hang with me on this. Uh, since modernity, the modern, uh, the modern age, there have been some new interpretations about what, how the word of God is contained in the Bible, that it's really important. It may seem academic, but you hear it every day, whether you have the radio on or you're hearing different popular Christian speakers, they are speaking with different views about how the word of God is found in the Bible. It's really important that we are able to discern that. So let's look. There's three... There's three basic views, and I, and I draw this from a, a scholar named G.I. Williamson who does a great study guide for the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I'm going to draw on his work here. But during the 19th and 20th centuries, German higher critics started toying with the nature of the Bible, of what, what it is. So you've got these, you've got these scholars in Germany in the, in the 18th century uh, the ni- excuse me, the 19th century, that are starting to toy with this, this idea, well, what really is the Bible? And, what, and where is the Word of God within the Bible? Where, where do we find it? And so this first view is called the liberal view. You can call it the liberal view. Or we could call it the old modern view. The liberal view or the old modern view of Scripture. So when uh, uh, the liberal or the old modern looks at the Bible, okay, I'll open my Bible as an illustration. When they look at the Bible, they're going to say some of, some of the parts of the Bible are the word of God. And some parts of the Bible are actually just the words of man. They may even use the word inspired, but they use it more in the sense of the artist who is inspired when they write the song. You know, they were just moved and then they were inspired and they wrote this song. And they would say, well, yeah, sure, the, the Bible's inspired. These are, these are men who had passionate experiences with God. They were inspired and then they wrote it down. They don't use it the way that we use it, that it's breathed out by God, the way that Paul uses it. So they look at the Bible, they say, well, some of it's the word of God and some of it is just the writings of man. So you're going to have true things in it and then you're going to have 
false things in it. You know, they were trying to be wrong, but it's just wrong. And so if the Bible then is on on the shelf and, and you look at it like this, you just say, okay, part of it's true, part of it's false. And then it's really just up to the interpreter to decide what's God's word and what is wrong and false. Okay, so that's how a liberal would answer what the Bible is and what the word of God is. The second modern position is developed by a teacher named Karl Barth, B-A-R-T-H, Karl Barth. And his teachings about the nature of scripture is known as neo-orthodoxy, neo-orthodoxy, N-E-O-dash-orthodoxy. Or you can call it the new modernism. Okay, with the old modernism and the new modernism. And uh, Karl Barth's position <clears throat> teaches that the whole Bible has errors in it. That it's, there, there's just, the whole thing has errors. It's just, it's the fallible word of man. But here's where Karl Barth gets tricksy. So Karl Barth's going to go and say, but... When you read the Bible, somehow, we don't quite know how, but somehow when you read it, God speaks to us through these fallible words. And in our minds, that becomes the true word of God. Okay, I hope this is making, it's confusing because it's, it's really wacky. <laughs> but so it's like, okay, this is just a human book, like any other book that we would read. It's like Tolstoy. It's like Les Mis. It's like any other. It's like Plato's Republic. It's just any other book. But when we read it, somehow God, uh, in our mind, speaks to us the true word of God. That's the new modernism. That's what Karl Barth and uh, his students and children would, would teach. I use child in the sense of the his pupils that came after him. So for Karl Barth, if you looked at the Bible on the shelf, that is not the word of God. It only becomes the word of God when you open it up and God somehow speaks to you through fallible words. Okay? So that's the new modern uh, position, to use uh, Williamson's phrase. Now finally... And thank goodness, we come to the historic Christian position about what the Word of God, and this is the position of the Westminster Catechism about what it means that the Word of God is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. So you can call this the historic Christian position. Uh, You can call it the Reformed position. It's really, up until modern times, the position that all Christians had until we're talking, we're getting into the 17th and uh, 18th centuries when uh, some scholars start to get cute uh, during the Enlightenment and post-Enlightenment period. So what does this position teach? This position teaches that in the original Hebrew of the Old Testament, that in the original Greek of the New Testament, that the very words chosen 
and written are the word of God. That the very words themselves, the grammar chosen, are actually the breathed out words of God. That the Holy Spirit through, wrote and breathed out scripture through the writings of men that were called by God to write scripture. So to continue our illustration then, in the historic position, when we look at the Bible on the shelf, it is the pure, infallible, inerrant word of God. It is the very words. And of this word, Jesus says that not an iota, that's the Greek little I, not an iota, not even a dot will pass away from the scriptures until all of it has been accomplished. So if you want the position that Jesus held, which is the historic position and that I would urge you to hold, obviously, is that every dot, every iota is inspired scripture in the original original Greek, the original Hebrew. Every part of it is the breathed out word of God. So if you want to find everlasting joy and pleasure in the presence of God, if you want to know how to glorify him and enjoy him forever, you will find the answer in God's holy, inerrant, inspired scriptures, of which all of it is true. Now, I'm leaving a lot of things out about interpretation of scripture, genres of scripture, how do you interpret things. That's not in the purview of this catechism question. But the basic point that the Westminster theologians and that I am making is if you want to find how to live out your chief end to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We will do so exclusively in the word of God. But I just said the word exclusively. Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. Is the Bible the only place where we find God's word? So you could argue, well, yes, it's all God's word, but we can find God's word elsewhere as well. Can we? Is it the only rule? Because the catechism goes on you, you know, here. It says the word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old New Testament, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. Is it the only rule? So we're going to unpack that. So we first saw that the Bible is the rule. And now second, we're going to see that the Bible is the only rule. Okay, the Bible is the only rule. So the catechism is clear on this point to tell us that the only rule that directs us to how to glorify and enjoy God is Holy Scripture. But if that is true, if the Bible is the only rule, then that means that Muhammad and Joseph Smith and the Pope and Bill Johnson and so many others who claim to speak for God are dead wrong. And now the question is, is that arrogant for me to say? Is it arrogant for the Westminster theologians to say that the Bible's the only rule, which excludes all these other statements about so-called what God is saying? Is the exclusive view of the Bible as God's word an arrogant position? 
you know? You walk down the street, you find somebody else, you say, this is the only place where you find truth. I mean, you're going to be called a lot of names if you say that. If you stand up in your college class and say that, uh, you're going to be uh, called a lot of names. Arrogant will be one of them. Naive might be another one. You know, if you say that, you're going to be shot down as these things. My, uh, my, seminary, my seminary professor, D.A. Carson, just penned an incisive critique of uh, the postmodern view of tolerance in his book, The Intolerance of Tolerance. Great title, isn't it? The Intolerance of Tolerance. Um, in that book, Carson notes that a subtle but substantial shift from the acknowledgement that different truth claims exist has taken place. What he's saying is that there used to be this view that you could acknowledge that different views existed. Okay? And that was viewed as being at least somewhat tolerant. But the new definition of tolerance is that you have to acknowledge that all of those different truth claims are equally valid or true, or at least as possibly true as your own. Do you see the shift? It went from the acknowledgement that, yes, I know there's a lot of different views about what the Word of God is, and you can acknowledge that people can have the right to have different views. That's one view of tolerance. The new view is that if you don't affirm all of those as equally true as yours, you're a, you're a bigot, you're ignorant, you're arrogant, and all of the above. And so he writes this shift from accepting the existence of different views to acceptance of different views, from recognizing other people's right to have different beliefs or practices, to accepting the differing views of other people in subtle in, is subtle in form, but massive in substance, to accept that a different or opposing position exists and deserves the right to exist is one thing. To accept the position itself means that one is no longer opposing it. The new tolerance suggests that actually accepting another's position means believing that position to be true, or at least as true as your own. So Carson's point is that the current culture's view of tolerance is actually incredibly intolerant. Any exclusive truth claim that threatens the entire postmodern worldview uh, let me say that again. Any exclusive truth claim threatens the entire postmodern worldview. And yet, ironically, the postmodern worldview has become itself one of the most intolerant views ever to exist. Nevertheless, the Bible and the historic Christian church will not yield to the claim that the Bible is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. But the claim of the Bible and the claim of historic Christianity is that God has condescended to reveal himself to us. And that revelation is contained in the word of God as found in the Bible. And that it is not from man, but it is indeed from God. And the reason that modern man hates this notion 
The reason why you will be hated if you state this view in your college class or in your workplace, the reason they hate it is that it places God as the supreme authority over them. The reason modern man hates that notion is that if God's word is in a book like this, then it clearly tells us how we ought to live. But if you can, if you can mutate and pervert God's word to just being some sensory feeling that I have inside, then you can live however you want. Because the postmodern spiritualist will tell you that, well, the way you really hear God is when you listen inside your heart. But our hearts are black, friends. Without God's grace, we are sinful through and through. And the only thing we will hear when we listen inside is what our own sinful flesh wants it to do. Modern man hates the notion of an infallible Bible contained in a written word because it clearly says what they want to do is sin. It removes them from the throne and acknowledges that God is Lord of them. That's why modern man hates to be told what to do from the Bible. It recognizes no authority higher than itself. They want, they want to be God. They want to, I'll use Carson's phrase, he used to say in class again, they want to de-God God. They want to place themselves uh, on his throne. To substantiate, just in closing, the Shorter Catechism's claims on uh, the exclusive nature of the, of the Word of God being contained in the Scriptures, they use actually a, a fairly surprising proof text, to me anyways, in 1 John 1, 3, and 4, which states, That which we have seen and heard, we will proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. The Catechism, I believe, wants to draw our attention to the unique role that the apostles shared in their gospel ministry. It was in the gospel's message that uh, through the apostles and only in their message that believers had fellowship with God. It was only in their gospel message that the believers could find fellowship with the saints as well as fellowship with the Father and the Son. And when they had that fellowship, their joy was complete. And I believe the, uh, the, the text is leading us not just the apostles' joy, but Everyone's joy is complete when they have that fellowship together. And I believe the reason that the Catechism draws us to this verse is that only in the foundational teaching of the apostles and prophets does the church find fellowship with God and the means by which they can glorify God and enjoy Him forever. 
So it's, it's only in what the apostles taught as they expound the Old Testament, they interpret it for us, they speak the words of the Lord. It's only in their teaching that we find fellowship. So the whole apostolic ministry that flows from these guys, from Christ, was for the glory of God and the joy of God's people, and it was found only there. But let me give you a few other texts as well that might help us to kind of be see what the Bible says about its exclusive nature. Later in chapter 4 of 1 John, uh, John goes on to write about these false teachers in their midst. He said, They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth from the spirit of error. And so uh, John is giving us what I kind of call the apostolic sniff test. It's kind of, you know, the, the sniff test. Is this still good? You know, does this need to be cleaned? You know, that kind of thing. The apostolic sniff test. If you're reading a book or hearing somebody speak, if what they are saying agrees with what the apostles teach, then it seems apparent that they are with the apostles, that they are speaking truth, that the spirit of truth is speaking through them. On the other hand, if you read what they're saying, listen to what they say, and like part of it maybe sounds okay or pretty good, but then they say these really other radical things that are completely contrary to Scripture, or they cut down other parts of Scripture, then they are speaking from the spirit of the Antichrist, the spirit of error. John uses the word Antichrist, that that's what these people are speaking out of. If they're leading you away from the New Testament teaching, they are not speaking from God at all. So John gives us this sniff test. And in this way, again, we're seeing the exclusivity of the apostles' teaching for knowing what the word of God is. But if that's not satisfactory to you, let me just give you a few additional proofs uh, in closing. Deuteronomy 4.2, for example. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Or Deuteronomy 12, 32. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. 2 Timothy three fifteen and 17, which we've read several times uh, throughout the course of the day. It's interesting how both the morning message and the evening message are coming around each other centered on the word, but that all scripture is breathed out for God. And uh, at the end of that verse, and uh, by it, the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So there's no work that God calls us to do that we're not given in the scripture. Okay. Galatians 1, 8 and 9, Paul says, but even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. The word uh, there is anathema. It's the same anathema that 
the Roman Catholic Church would utter against a heretic, saying, let them be damned. That's what Paul is saying. If we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Or Revelation twenty-two, eighteen and 19, in the close of Holy Scripture, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. So the Bible is the rule, and the Bible is the only rule. That's what question two is teaching us. And in close, I just want to ask the question, and maybe you're thinking it, well, do historic creeds and catechisms and confessions, like the ones we're learning out of, does that invalidate the Bible's claim to exclusive truth? And the answer is no, and this is why. The reason why is that the historic creeds and the reform confessions and catechisms fall far below the word of God. And even those who wrote them themselves would acknowledge that they are only true insofar as they agree with scripture. They are only true insofar as they faithfully teach what the word of God teaches. So any, uh, I don't even like to use the word authority any truth or power that is in the creeds or that's in the confessions is derived from Scripture as they are clarifying and teaching and systematizing what Scripture teaches. Does that make sense? So the Word of God reigns supreme, and it's far down here where the confessions and the catechisms and everything else are. They are they're down here. But if that's true, then why use them at all? You know, why, why don't we just like some say, well, the Bible's my creed, you know, or Jesus is my creed, right? Well, when somebody says the Bible is my creed, which sounds spiritual, right? Well, the Bible's my creed. What else do you need, right? That sounds spiritual, but the person who's saying that, all they really mean is that my personal interpretation of scripture is my creed. Do you see? My personal interpretation of Scripture is the right interpretation of Scripture. That's, that's what they're saying. So there are some important reasons we have confessions. Most denominations have a statement of faith of some kind. And it's important for a number of reasons. I'm just going to give you a few in closing. Number one, why they are important and helpful. They help us as a teaching tool. Simply put, they help to summarize what the Bible teaches about different topics and subjects that are important for us to believe. Sometimes it's a lot easier to know what the Bible teaches when we see that we see all of what it says about something in one place. So it summarizes, it systematizes biblical theology in a clear and concise way. Um, in the case of a ca- the catechisms, in a memorizable way a way that even a child, as we saw tonight, can remember what the Bible teaches. And of course, that's not to take away from memorizing uh, scripture verses. 
but in other words, when we have these teaching tools, they help to teach us stuff that would take us a lifetime or more in some cases to figure out for ourselves. You know, there's some things that uh, it would just take us a ton of work to figure out if you didn't at least have a guide along the way to help us. Second, they help us safeguard orthodoxy. And what orthodoxy means is a traditional historic Christian interpretation of scripture. So they keep us rooted in what the historic church has taught. And yes, of course, there are some there is some variation in what the historic church has taught in different points, but on things like the doctrine of scripture or the doctrine of God, by and large, the same thing we teach today that the confession teaches today is the same thing that has always been held by the historic Orthodox Christian church. So they help us to safeguard and know if somebody is within or without um, of that tradition. Also, it helps you to know if you have some wild position, it helps you to know whether you're within the realm of orthodoxy or you're way out on the farm somewhere. Um, It at least helps you know that uh, you're teaching or believing something that almost nobody has, or in some cases, nobody has ever taught before. Okay, so they safeguard orthodoxy. They give us some guardrails. Third, they give us unity in our teaching and mission. So that when, like for example, we're part of the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, you should be able, whether you're in this church or to any of the other churches in the denomination, they should all be teaching the exact same thing in the substance of the confession. And that allows your mission and your church to move forward with ordered unity around the the vitals of the faith. Uh, Number four, they protect us from the dangers of individual or single churches inventing their own interpretations. One of the big dangers of independent churches or individual Christian interpretation is that they, uh, they they think that somehow they have to reinvent the wheel for themselves and sometimes they they act like they actually are the sole people who've ever gotten the Bible right. Of all the churches and all the Christians that ever existed, well, we've got the right position. But their position isn't anchored in any historic statement of faith or anything else. It's just they're floating out there, uh, doing their own thing. And if you can't find unity with any other believers or churches, that is probably a clear sign that there are problems with the accuracy of your interpretation of Scripture, if you're not rooted. And and uh, let me just give you another example of that, too. If we are a modern church and we have no connection to the past, there's probably some major errors because we are breathing the air of our culture. And we we need to know what the historic church has taught. Finally then, lastly, they remind us, uh, they remind us, just simply put, that our faith wasn't invented yesterday. They speak to a dark and fallen world that the Christian faith is not a product of this generation. We worship the Ancient of Days. He has revealed himself to us in his holy word, and if we follow what it says, he will lead us 
to his own glory for our everlasting joy through faith in his Son. But now I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit because we have not got to the work of the Son yet in the Catechism. But it's the scriptures that are going to point us to everything we need for to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So the word of God, which is contained in the scriptures, the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. And I am so thankful, just on a personal note, I am so thankful for the saints of old that have directed me to those truths. I think you guys could say the same thing, that have directed you to those truths. I'm so thankful for these old dead people, these old saints that are more alive than we are in glory right now, that have pointed us to the old paths. They've pointed us to truth. By the confession, by these catechisms, they are pointing us back. These old saints are calling us to examine the scriptures in a way that few challenge us today. They beckon us to walk down the ancient paths where life and peace are found. It is as if they call out to us after the words of our Lord in Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls.